Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Robbie Achadri. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's episode, we continue our Story Behind the Story series, where Rabia sits down with true crime expert Aaron Habel. Please enjoy. Hi, and welcome to Nighty Night, the Stories Behind the Story series. Every week, I will be joined by guests who are mostly my friends and fellow podcasters to discuss the cases that have inspired some of your favorite Nighty Night stories. Remember now, we will be back in the fall leading up to Halloween with an entire new slate of bedtime stories to keep you awake. But until then, enjoy these deep dives with my guests. This week, I am thrilled to welcome the co-host of Generation Y, a true crime podcast that I have long been a fan of, Aaron Habel. Aaron hosts Generation Y with his longtime friend, Justin Evans. Aaron also hosts Framed, an investigative story which does a deep dive each season into another case which was never properly handled. Generation Y started in June of 2012, years before Serial came along, after Justin served as a juror on a first-degree murder trial in Kansas City, and he wanted a way to tell others about the surprising ways our court system actually works and doesn't work, and Aaron had recently watched the true crime documentary The Staircase. As everyone knows, after Serial launched in 2014, the true crime podcast space exploded. And Generation Y was one of the shows leading the pack and continues to do so. Welcome to Nighty Night, Aaron. How are you doing tonight, Ravia? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us on our second episode in the series. Very exciting. So I need some more information about how you got into true crime podcasting because I'm like watching one documentary couldn't have done it. That, like that, that could have been that could not have been the moment. <laughs> no, it's really funny because Justin and I were kind of doing this before we were doing it because we would get on the phone and there would be a couple of different topics we'd find ourselves constantly discussing. And one was mixed martial arts and the other one was basically crime. Interesting. And so, you know, you, you hear the stories about Jean Benet Ramsey or whoever, and it starts you down the rabbit hole of all the different theories and what could have happened, what was the motive. And of course, in the end, it's always about the justice, it seems. That's where I always land. Mm. And with Justin, while I'm on the justice side, he more likes to look at how we got to where we were. Like, what did the system actually allow? There are judges that can choose what gets presented in court, as you know. So it makes it so interesting. And I think that's why true crime is as big as it is. I know a lot of people have their theories on why, but I think because there's so much to chew on and it matters. There are literally lives at stake. Do you and Justin kind of feel like outliers sometimes? Because, you know, we've all been at these true crime conventions and it is overwhelmingly women, right? So do you feel like, how did we end up as guys? Are there other guys in your sphere, other men in your sphere who are also like true crime junkies? Oh, there definitely are. There definitely are, Um, but they're in the minority and I don't have any problem with how many women, you know, have, I mean, they've taken over the whole space. Right. And I think that's great. Uh, Personally, most of the podcasts I listen to are hosted by women. Yeah, that that is true. So, I mean, some of the most popular ones are definitely hosted by women, but Generation Y, you guys decided to just start a podcast at a point in which not a lot of people knew what podcasting was. Like, how did you get to podcasts? Were you listening to them? Do you have a background in broadcaster media? Well, many years ago, back in 1999, Justin and I started making music together. Ah. And it's kind of dark, experimental, noisy kind of stuff. And we did that for a couple of years. 
And then as life happens, you know, we kind of drifted apart as far as making something together. And, um, and then one day he called me and he said, Hey, I got chosen to be a juror. And I was like, man, I, you know, I've, I've been chosen and then later would find out, yeah, they don't need you, <laughs> but he actually got to do it. And he was on a first degree murder trial and he could not believe the stuff that he heard, you know, and, and one of those tidbits that we always relate is that they had actually tested for fingerprints and DNA in the house. And one of the people that lived there, they actually didn't find their fingerprints or DNA in the places they looked. Incredible. So it just shows you like the things that you'd expect don't always happen. And that was just one part, but he, he was talking about, it's amazing that over the course of a week, he had to make a decision on whether someone was put away for life or not. Wow. It, it weighs heavy on you. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I actually have not ever served on a jury. I just haven't been summoned yet, but I will say most people when they get the summons are not as excited as Justin sounds like he was. So, so the podcast then happened how? So he calls you and says, I was on this jury. Well, he contacted me because he knew I listened to a lot of podcasts. And I would imagine that of all the people he knew, I listened to more than anyone. Mm. And so, um, and I would say that one of the first podcasts I found that really struck me that I thought was amazing was This American Life. Right, 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 right. I mean, to me, that's that was the first standard. And, and when we started, you can tell when we started because our audio quality in the beginning was not good. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't understand what kind of mic you should use and what kind of a room. And, and it took us time to understand all that. But along the way, we tried to put most of our work into finding the cases we wanted to talk about. So uh, we are going to now pivot to this week's case that I want to talk about. I don't know how familiar you are. Have you got a chance to listen to any of Nighty Night? I've listened to about four episodes. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. So, and I'm subscribed, so <laughs> I do have them. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Listen, I know podcasters themselves get very little time to listen to podcasts, so I really do appreciate it. The case we're going to dive into this week is the one that inspired the Nighty Night story that was titled Old Country Road. And I wrote that myself. I don't write most of the stories. I think this season I only wrote two, in fact. But this one I had to write myself because it was totally inspired by my own fear of the man who was known in this area as the Route 29 killer. But I lived in the area that he was operating in, and I drove on Route 29 at least four times a week, usually completely by myself or with like my infant daughter. So scary. So first of all, Aaron, had you ever heard of the Route 29 killer? You know, I don't think I had until you had brought him to my attention. Okay. Probably not then or now. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I don't know how well known it is really outside like the immediate region, like the DMV, which is like DC, Maryland, Virginia. But basically Route 29, it's like this north-south corridor. It passes through a lot of small towns, rural areas and cities. It connects a bunch of college towns. It goes on for quite a bit from inside Maryland, like almost Baltimore area, actually, I think, and then all the way down south to deep into Virginia. And it's a very busy road. I mean, like there might be some rural areas in it, but it's a pretty busy road. Now, there have been apparently up to possibly 18 murders or disappearances of women close or off of this road that have been attributed to this particular predator. But we're going to zoom in on the one case where we have the most concrete information, and that is the murder of Alicia Reynolds. So it's 1996. Saturday, March 2nd, 
and Alicia lives in Baltimore with her husband. She is a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University. She's doing her doctoral candidacy in pharmacology, and she leaves at 7.30 in the morning to go all the way to Charlottesville, which is about three and a half hours away, to meet up with her mom, because they're gonna go shopping for her brother's upcoming wedding. She's known to be very punctual, very responsible, she should, if she had not stopped, arrived around 11, and she never did make it. And at 1 p.m., the family called the police. And she took Route 29, and that was the route she always took. So the, the family knew that she would have been on that road for much of her trip. Now, that afternoon, a person found a credit card in her name on a residential street, so off of 29, it's not on 29, in the town of Culpeper. And Culpeper is about two-thirds of the way to Charlottesville. And then that evening, a state trooper found her car on the side of Route 29, a few miles south of Culpeper, and somebody had left a white napkin under the windshield wiper, which is, I guess, is that a sign that your vehicle's disabled? I didn't know that. Did you know that? Yes, I know a little bit about this. Apparently what it is is in, they would put like a white rag or a napkin or something either in the window or on the glass there to kind of tell police or tow truck drivers please don't tow my vehicle. Mm. I'm trying to get help and I'll be back. Okay. So it's a way to try and buy a little more time because sometimes you come back and your vehicle's gone. Yeah, yeah. To me, this is interesting because her car is found outside of Culpeper, a few miles south of Culpeper, but her credit card is found inside the town, like in a residential neighborhood. What does that say to you with your sleuth hat on? Well, unfortunately, if someone goes missing, it means that maybe someone made off with them and their things, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, like when I read like kind of the chronology here, I was like, what it sounds like is her car broke down right outside of Culpeper and she's south of it. So she's actually on the, the side closest to her destination. She leaves the handkerchief on it. Somebody takes her back into town because she's just a couple miles out. And from there is when she disappears, probably. Also, apparently her black gloves were found near the car, which is kind of interesting because I don't know if it means that she just accidentally dropped them as she was getting into another truck. But there were people who said that they thought they saw a woman that looked like her around the area that the car was found at about 10 a.m. Saturday morning, which would kind of track with what time she would have hit Culpepper and that she was looking under the hood of her car and that she was seen getting into a dark pickup truck. Now, the next day, there were four people reported that they seen a pickup truck parked on Route 29, and that there was a white male wearing, like, construction-type clothing, and he was helping a woman. Now, it's not clear if they mean on that day or the day before, but this was kind of the beginning, and I remember this time, the beginning of, like, just so many reports. Like, when she went missing and it made the news, suddenly all these reports started coming forward of other women who were like, oh, somebody matching this description with a dark truck had tried to pull me over or had pulled me over. Apparently this guy was, what he would do is he would tell women, and I mean, and I was braced for this because I had gotten this warning like through the, you know, just women calling other women and saying, be on the lookout. He would pull up next to women as they were driving and like point to their tire or point to something like make it look like something is wrong with your car you need to pull over and then they would pull over and he'd pull up behind them and try to convince them that listen something's up with your car i can take you to a service station or something yeah it's a ruse and we know this has been used by serial killers uh most notably 
Ted Bundy. Yep. Now he didn't use that ruse, but again, it's the whole, oh, I need help. I have a cast or whatever, whatever you want to say it is, but it's always a ruse to get someone to let down their guard and make them think they need your help. Well, you know, I got to say this. I mean, like I'm at this point in my life and maybe because I've spent way too many hours listening to a crime podcast that if I see somebody on the side of the street that looks like they need help, you know, I, I might try to get them help, but in the safest way possible by calling others. Mm -hmm. But I would say that if I was driving along and somebody's pointing to like, and I, I don't know cars enough, my first instinct would be immediately to pull over. Like I wouldn't even second, even knowing these kinds of stories, I would totally pull over. But apparently there were also reports that he had impersonated a police officer. Like he had flashing lights or something. I don't even know if he had a siren, but probably just flashing lights. And that's enough to make a person pull over too. And there have been many cases in which criminals impersonating police officers have been successful in hurting people. Yeah. And this is where you can't let your guard down. Even if someone says there are sparks flying out of your tailpipe, just drive to a safe place, drive to a car repair place, because what's the worst that can happen? They'll tell you there's nothing wrong with your car. Yeah. Well, you know, but let's say somebody's behind you and they're flashing their lights. The advice I've heard to make sure that this person is like really an officer, you're safe, is to either like call 911 and say, I think there's an officer behind me. I don't know if it's an officer. I'm not comfortable pulling over for whatever reason. I'm on a lonely dark road somewhere or whatever. And and can you check? I don't know. How, could they check? Could they know if there's an officer behind that person? I don't know how. It's worth a try, I would say. Yeah. Or otherwise, keep driving until you can get to a place that has like lighting and other people. But a lot of people of color would say, oh, hell no. If I just kept driving and it was a real police officer behind me, before I know it, I'm going to be surrounded by officers and they're going to like run me off the road type thing mm -hmm. or shoot at me. Like it's a tricky situation for some folks. And I understand that. That's where maybe calling if you're able to call. But of course, then they say you're not supposed to be using your phone while you're driving. You know, they really have you in a vulnerable spot is I guess what you're probably pointing out here. Yeah. It can be, um, it can be tricky. And I also wonder, like, if I, when I think about these situations, and I have two daughters, I mean, I have a son too, but he's five. So I have two daughters, and my eldest is 24, and she's, you know, like a 24, she's all over the place. And I'm always, like, issuing warnings, and she's like, you know, mom, I think you're a little, <laughs> a little paranoid. And I don't know if that's what all these stories have made me, but it's hard not to be. Do, does that happen to you too, by the way? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of these stories. How's it affected you and, like, how you live? Well, it definitely keeps me on my toes. You know, Justin and I have talked before, we'll be covering a case like the Golden State Killer, and it makes you nervous when you hear sounds in your house that you're not familiar with. And so you're more aware of your surroundings. You take a look out the windows, you check your doors, are they locked? You talk to your kids, you tell them, if anybody tells you not to say something, you tell me. You know, there are so many things you, you can tell your kids, and you're just trying to be safe. And if they can tell you they think you're being overly cautious. Well, good, because they're still talking to you and everybody's okay. Right. I have a feeling that all podcasters have Simply Safe in their home. <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> We're all protected. <laughs> it works well. <laughs> it does work well. All right. So back to the case. Police immediately set up a checkpoint and they're looking for her. In a county, one county over, Madison County, her parka is found near a pond on a private property, which is interesting. Only about 15 miles from where her car is found. It's almost like there's an entire trail. And then, of course, it's turned over to the police. Because there's a pond there, they do a search by divers on March 13th. So we're like, now what, 10, 11 days out, don't find her. They set up, you know, telephone like hotlines, and they got like 900 leads. 
a reward, doing everything they can. There's also sketches of him out, but here's the description, okay? White male, 35 to 45, 5, 10 to 6 feet tall, light, medium brown hair, possibly growing a beard, mustache, medium build. It's literally like, you know, we all know like 15 people like this. So not very helpful, frankly. Now, what's interesting is like, all the reports I'm reading now are saying that people reported it was a Nissan truck that was an, a dark truck. I specifically remember being told it's a white truck, like look out for white trucks. And I've had like a fear of white trucks and vans like ever since. <laughs> yeah. So that's one thing that didn't track with my memory, but you know, things, they shift through the grapevine and everything. Now, earlier that year, like, so this happened in March and just a few weeks before this, like in late February on Route 34, which is also a route that runs through Virginia not far from Culpeper in this whole area, there was another incident that had been reported to the police. This woman had gotten to the truck of this man, and there's, I don't have the information as to like how or why she had, but then he tried to assault her. She did escape, broke her leg in the process, and so the police thought this might be the same guy. But the other interesting thing here was that there were almost two dozen women who said that they had something similar happen to them. They'd been pulled over, but Six of them said that they got into the man's vehicle, which when I read that, I'm like, why would you do that? But I mean, those six obviously made it fine because they reported to the police that they got in his vehicle and he dropped him off at a gas station, this and that. So the theory was that maybe he was just practicing at that time, seeing what worked and what didn't work, getting women into his car. Two months go by and it's May and Alicia Reynolds' body is eventually found in a logging area. And it's about 12 miles east of Culpeper, 15 miles from when she was last seen. So a resident, either was a resident or he worked in the area, said that he saw buzzards circling overhead and he went over to see what was going on and, and found the body. And that's it. I mean, like literally the case went cold. Like nobody has ever been charged with Reynolds' murder, but there's lots of possible connections um, between this murder and other cases, including Daryl David Rice. And so let's talk a little bit about Daryl David Rice. Now you, Aaron, earlier mentioned a case that you asked whether that was connected to this one or not. And it, it was involving Daryl Rice. So can you tell us about that? Right. It was on July 9th, 1997, when Rice was in his pickup truck and he was driving to the Shenandoah National Park. But along the way, he passed a woman who was cycling and he ended up stopping his truck and he took his license plates off the truck. Oh, wow. And then he drove toward her and he got her where she was off by herself. No one else was around by a rest area. And he cruised along next to her where she kind of had to go off the road because he was so close to her. And he flew out of his truck and tried to attack her. Now, she's riding on her bicycle and she's wearing cycling shoes as they call them right mm -hmm. they fit into the pedals yeah well so it's not easy for her to maneuver around and the only way she's able to get away from this guy is she's got her bike between them and she's trying to fend him off with the bike and so he keeps getting upset and he keeps jumping into his truck and revving the truck and f just accelerating at her and she keeps having to jump over basically lumber you that know, is like terrifying. logs and trees and at one point he even grabbed at her chest and was saying basically show me you know oh my god and um what was that what was the name of this victim yvonne melbasha okay but she was and able to so get away she was able to get away and he ended up finally driving away but 
you know, so you have to understand, he didn't have any plates on his truck. He had taken them off. Mm. But she was able to find a park ranger. And he could see that she was kind of messed up. She had an abrasion on her back. And she was obviously very upset. And so she gave a description. So they were able to track him down. Mm. And when they got to him, he had his plates back on his truck. And when they searched inside, they found these plastic flex cuffs that law enforcement uses. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a sign. And a 10-foot length of nylon rope. And of course, you know, he gets brought in and an FBI agent shows up as well as a National Park Service investigator. And they're talking with him. And he starts admitting that he was going after her, but he said he only wanted to aggravate her. Hmm. What does that mean? He, wa- he basically wanted to terrorize her. Just to scare her? But no one believed him. Of course not. I mean, come on. No. Um, but I think that was his way of protecting himself. He knew he was caught, but he was trying to downplay what was actually happening. Because this looked like probably a rape and a murder. Yeah. Is what it was going to be if yeah. if Yvonne hadn't been able to fend him off. Yeah. So he was actually sentenced to 11 years for this attempted abduction. But what's interesting, he actually was also the guy who committed the February 96 attack. And the victim there was Carmelita Shomo. So he was charged with that. And and he was charged while he was serving the sentence from Basha. But at some point, he was also charged with a double murder of two women in Shenandoah National Park, Julie Williams and Laurel Winans. But apparently they had to drop charges because Heron DNA didn't match him, which I'm curious to know. Like, I mean, in 97, I don't know when they tested that, but in 97, it was kind of thin, the science on the DNA side of it. Well, and if I can, that case, they had to drop it, like you said, because the evidence didn't fit him. Yeah. But if if you know about his comments to investigators who had questioned him, he obviously didn't care that they died and actually thought they deserved it. So a real winner here. Oh, my Lord. Well, he also lived in Culpeper. Well, he gave a Culpeper address, at least. I mean, he's a strong suspect, I think. But he's, again, he's never been, nobody's been charged with Alicia Reynolds' murder. But this guy, I wonder, do you have any idea, like, is he still serving time or is is he out? That was an 11-year sentence and that was it. Right. And when he was released, there was a time where they were getting calls from people about him. And they had to answer that he wasn't currently wanted, so they couldn't arrest him. But there were people who who would spot him and say, he's a dangerous individual. They need to pick him up. But he had served his time. And his family maintained that he wasn't the guy, that he wasn't as bad as everyone was making him out to be. And so since then, he didn't has not popped up on police radar, hasn't gone back to prison, it sounds like. Not as far as I know, but he he was a suspect in other cases, like the two women you mentioned yeah. who were hikers, but he was not able to be tied to those. Mm. I mean, the thing about these kinds of perpetrators, generally speaking, from just the work that I've done and, and the investigations I've seen is like there always tends to be an escalation over time. So if it starts out by him wanting to scare women or harassing women, then wanting to scare women, then actually grabbing them and assaulting them, moves up to rape, moves to murder. It nearly always escalates unless they end up in prison and never leaving prison, um, or there's some kind of serious intervention. So somebody out like that is a really scary prospect. There are some other possible suspects, though, with Alicia Reynolds' murder, and the other one that was one of the prime suspects was this guy named Richard Ivanitz. How would you say that? Ivonitz? I would I would say Ivonitz, but yeah. that's just how I would say it. Yeah. 
So he was a serial killer who had abducted and murdered three girls from Spotsylvania County in Pennsylvania around that same time in 96, 97. And then he had abducted and sexually assaulted a girl in South Carolina in 2002. He committed suicide when the police finally got to him. But when they were searching his home, police found notes that had directions to the girls' places and some notes that had general directions to Route 29 in Culpeper County. And before he died, apparently he confessed to his sister that he'd committed so many crimes he couldn't remember them all. That's terrifying. But there's nothing really to tie him to this. I mean, I think Alicia Murder's case is such that um, I don't know if there's really any forensic evidence that they could test against. And this is the problem with these cases. Uh, We've seen with familial DNA testing, they're finding killers who they can only tie to one or two cases, but they have the DNA to show it now. And you wonder if down the road... The technology gets better. They can retest evidence and do something with it. But as it is, yes, this this feels like this other name is there because of where he was and because of who he was going after. Yeah. I mean, clearly he's somebody who can't be ruled out. So uh, other, I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier that there are potentially up to 18 other women who have either disappeared or uh, been murdered, found murdered, that might be tied to whoever's opera. But uh, obviously, there could be more than one person committing these crimes because the MO is a little bit different in some of these. For example, a woman named Thelma Scroggins, she's 74. She was found shot in her home in July of 1996, again, close to Route 29. Doesn't seem like the same MO to me, but who knows? But then there's Carol Ann McDaniel, and she was 20 years old. She went missing in September of 96. And she went missing from a town named Orange. It's pretty close to Route 29, 19 miles away from Culpeper. And her burned remains were found in the area. And so she was kind of like the third murder victim found near this tiny little town in less than five months. Alicia Reynolds had been the first one in May of that year. Now, again, Anne disappeared in September and there was another victim in between. So that's a lot of bodies in the span of six months in this tiny little area. But skipping many years ahead, like 2010, a young woman by the name of Samantha Clark went missing from pretty much the same place. And there was a guy named Randy Allen Taylor, who was the last person who had spoken to her. And the reason he's important is because he was later convicted of murdering another woman, Alexis Murphy, in 2013. She went missing in 2013. She was leaving a gas station right off of 29. She was seen interacting with Randy Taylor and her remains were found like years later, but he was convicted of the murder. So Taylor is another potential suspect for Alicia Reynolds. But it almost seems like there's like one more than one person operating in this area because there's this big gap, right? So 96, you have a number of disappearances. Well, 97 are some of the cases that we mentioned. And then 2010. What do you think? Well, and that's one of those age old questions, Rabia, where we don't know why serial killers stop. Mm. Is it because they died? Were they incarcerated? Did they move? Are they operating elsewhere? And crimes like this that happen on interstates or on these roads, these routes, yeah, it seems like those are their stomping grounds. This is where they hunt. And so it's just one of those questions where we can think about it, we can theorize, but there's really no way to know. There's another theory that I have read online, and that is that the killer might be somebody who's a truck driver and has certain routes and then routes change or they start moving in a different region. And so there have been many cases in which truck drivers got away with killing women over the years. But 
in this case, it's so clear that this is like somebody who's been identified over and over as this guy who looks like X and he's got this dark Nissan pickup truck. It's not somebody like an 18 wheeler. So it seems like to me, like whoever that person was who was operating that time with a Nissan might be distinct from some of these other folks. And maybe he just moved out of the area. Maybe he's one of these people we've discussed. A couple other victims, Morgan Harrington, 20 years old from Virginia Tech. She went missing in Charlottesville in October 2009. Hannah Graham, 18, University of Virginia student, went missing in Charlottesville in September 2014. Both of their bodies were found in Albemarle County, which is right on, or actually I think crosses 29. And the man who was convicted of the murder named Jesse Matthew, so another potential suspect. But as late as 2014, we've had reports of people missing. In 2012, there was yet one more person. It just seems like unless we are cognitively making these connections to 29, right, that this is like a scary route to drive because like so many people, so many, maybe you could do that with any interstate, right, in the country. Possibly. And that's something we'd have to look into, right? Because at least Route 29, this does look like a place to keep your eyes and ears open, pay attention, because um, I, like you, I, I really think there's more than one person operating here. And it's just, it, maybe it's an ideal place for killers. And it doesn't mean it's inherently dangerous. It's just, it's attracting dangerous people. Yeah. So this story has been with me for like... Let's see, how old was I at the time? I, I was, this is like literally 20 odd years ago, almost 20, 22 years ago, I think is when this was happening, if I can do the math right. And I was in law school at the time and my daughter was an infant and like literally like in an infant car seat in the back. And so if somebody pulled up next to me, they might not have even seen her, but like the fear of it has remained with me for so long. And a lot of people don't know this, but a few years after that, I was traveling overseas and I was actually abducted for about six hours by a man. And I made it out alive. And I am very lucky to have made it out alive because that night, that man was definitely, like you said, the plan for a lot of these guys is to, you know, rape and murder. So these kinds of stories, like they just, they haunt me. And so that's why, I don't know if you listen to Old Country Road, which is like the one that I wrote about this. I have. Oh, okay. But I wanted to flip the script in that one. Cause I was like, it's gonna, <laughs> the killer is gonna turn out to be the woman who you actually feel like scared for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I almost think that was my way of like empowering myself a little bit in that moment. But so that's, I mean, that's it for this case. I don't know if there's anything else like you want to like add. I mean, you are a fount of true crime wisdom and knowledge, <laughs> but anything? Well, my takeaway is what can we do here? Mm -hmm. I don't know that we can solve some of these murders, but what we can do is try to offer advice to the public, make them aware that when they're traveling, especially uh, on their own, they need to not be so trusting. If someone tells you that there's something wrong with your car, just keep driving. In fact, if you're concerned, you think something might be wrong with your vehicle, go somewhere where there's a lot of people. You'll find someone who will help you look at your car. That won't be a problem. You just don't want to do it with the person who's offering to help you who you don't know, right? Yeah. That's, that's going to be a ruse. That's, if you're going to make it back home safe... You need to assume there are bad people out there and they will trick you to get the upper hand. You know, just today on Twitter, a woman tweeted at me and, and actually tweeted at like a number of other true crime podcasters or people working in investigations and said, I want to ask you something. My sister was approached by a man in her neighborhood as she was just out and about who said to her, 
listen, there's somebody going around this neighborhood who's attacking women or threatening women. And I just want to help protect as many people. And I'd like to help protect you too. And she's like, something about that doesn't sit right with me. And to me, it sounds like a complete ruse, right? Like, but again, I don't know, have, have I conditioned myself to just become so untrusting of people? I think it's always better to err on the side of caution. And I replied to your tweet. Oh, did you? With this, where the person's pointing upward, because it's better to be safe than sorry. And just because someone's telling you, oh, I can keep you safe, that very well could be a ruse. That's what they want. They want you to trust them. Oh, I'm helping you. I'm telling you about something wrong with your vehicle. Oh, there's a bad person around here. I can walk with you. Do not trust these people because it's not worth it. At the end of the day, these victims, at least the ones who, well, Alicia Reynolds, for sure, and anybody else who might have gotten his cars victimized. And truth is, we we might not know everybody he victimized. Like, we probably don't. We don't know the story of every woman. Uh, we don't know the story. Of, there might be women who didn't get away, and we don't know their stories, right? But if they got in his car, it's because they trusted him. As simple as that. And one conversation I've had numerous times, especially when I'm talking about like public safety issues and like, you know, especially for young girls to stay safe and women to stay safe, because we, it is almost impossible for us to go out in the world and not always be like checking the backseat of the car, you know, making sure like it's just how you get conditioned to try to live safely. Because most women I know, I feel like almost everyone, most women I know have experienced assault in some way in their life. But the argument that I get then from a lot of folks is like, well, you make it sound like every man is like a perp and that's not true. And it it doesn't have to be. (laughs) The fact that such a huge majority of women have been victims of some type of assault situation, whether it's a violent assault or a sexual assault, it can literally just be, I mean, one man can do this like for years in his life, right? Like he can spend his whole life doing this. And that's, I don't want to talk about like the percentage of men or, you know, people who are potentially violent. I'm more concerned about like how many people I know who've been victimized and it's way too many. Well, I think there's probably a historical reason why this is and why we're talking about women being victims of men. And that's probably a whole other conversation. But I mean, even today, it it seems like women are still fighting for equality in many ways. So I think you go back and women for, I mean, how many years? Uh, We're talking centuries or worse, um, were considered property. Yeah. And I think that's something that is inherently wrong. And we're still seeing the side effects of today, even though there have been changes. You know, we have a vice president who's a woman. Right. But there's a long way to go still. There are still people out there. I'm sure you've seen cases like this, but there are cases that involve incels. And there's a rage. Yeah. There are some yeah. people who don't like the changes. Yeah. They want women to be inferior and they don't want them to be on the same level. And if they want them, they want to be able to take them. And, uh, and I think that's part of what's going on. If you, if you read about Daryl Rice, he made plenty of comments that make me think that he was an incel. Mm. It's, I mean, this is actually a very common that feature, personality trait, or whatever it is you want to, I mean, like, or characteristic of serial killers, in fact, is that the ones who target women is that they do have a deep-seated hatred of women. There's insecurity. There's, like, you know, sexual insecurity. Many times they've never even, you know, they have never had a romantic relationship, and that makes them, like, enraged. Yeah, that certainly all exists. And it's interesting that you're tying this in with, like, kind of a greater violent masculine culture, which is like taking our show and it's a whole, a whole different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, and again, we're not, I'm not trying to say that all men are like this oh, or even of most not. of them, but yeah. there are enough of them yeah. that we see the effects of it every day. Yeah. 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 And I don't know how long it'll be before that changes, but it might be never. 
Here's how I've looked at it. Um, I think it's important to teach young boys and young men to, you know, to healthy masculinity and all that stuff and respect for girls. But at, at, at the end of the day, I'm also very much in favor of teaching young girls how not to be victims. Like you said, tell your children, if somebody says this to you, you come tell me. If somebody touches you, you come to, like, you making sure that your kids are empowered, that people are empowered, that they know how to keep themselves safe. Because at the end of the day, you just can't, you can't account for all the horrible human beings out there. Well, I, I can certainly recommend, you know, I just watched a documentary, Rabia, titled Rewind, and it shows the devastating effects of having a person trust their family. And so, you know, you just never know who will attempt to victimize you. And that's where you do have to teach your children, this is your body. Yeah. No one has any power over you in that regard. Yeah. And I also think it's really, really important to listen to your intuition. And this is one of the other stories we'd actually did. And the writers, we're going to have her on in a few weeks, called The Little Hairs. And it's about how women are also conditioned to just kind of be polite. This guy's pulled mm -hmm. over. He's like trying to help you be polite. Even if the little red flags and your the hairs on your body are standing, like you're not feeling quite right, but you're like, oh my God, he's trying to help me. What's wrong with me? And listening to your intuition is also really, really important. Yeah. Don't worry about being rude, right? Yeah. Like you don't know this person. It's your life. It's your life. You don't know this person. All right. Well, I think that's it for us this week, Aaron. Thank you so much. I want to tell our listeners um, where they can find you online. Well, they can find us at genypod.com or on Twitter. We're also genypod. What about you personally? Do you have a personal Twitter account? Yeah. My personal Twitter is Rosnio, R-A-A-S-N-I-O. And can you tell us a little bit also about Framed? Because we haven't talked about Framed much before we wrap up. Yeah. Uh, I really love Framed. It's it's not a side project because it's it's such a big project, but it's a it's something that I do with Jake and he has a real passion for helping people who are incarcerated wrongfully. Mm. And so he wanted me to help him with this podcast. And he's he's not an attorney, but I can tell you the way that he goes through all the files. I mean, he, maybe he should have been one, but I really hope people would check it out because I think it, it's such a deep dive. We also use voice actors to help you understand who's speaking and who's saying what, who's doing what. And then I, I do the narration, but it's a deep dive. and. Um, the first case involves a young man who went to work and never left his work and what happened to him. And that's a case that involves the attorney for Stephen Avery, Kel uh, Kathleen Zellner. Yeah. Uh, and then also on our second season it involved a Buddhist temple that was hit in a massacre down in the Southwest of America and about who was actually responsible for that. So these are deep dives. And so if you, if you want something more than an hour, then check out our 10 to 12 episodes each season on Framed. You know, that is 100% my jam. I'm going to go subscribe now as soon as we get off this call. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Aaron. You have a great night. Yeah, have a great night. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast.